Thanks, Caleb, for reading the scriptures. Just got confirmed, and now he's reading the Bible. So that's amazing. Uh, it's good to see everybody here. I've been away for a couple of weeks. Uh, I've been busy with family, with parents. I haven't seen them in a few years, and uh, it's good to see them. Um, they're getting old. And, you know, one of the things I realized as I spend time with our parents, and those of you in my shoes, you kind of know because you have parents too, that not only do I, I feel bad because they're getting older, um, but I have a glimpse of where I'm headed, right? I, I'm, I'm a few steps behind them. And it's a, it's a rude awakening. You know, my father can't do the things he used to do, just simple things like walking up the stairs. Uh, you know, my mom trips everywhere. And, you know, I don't understand. It's like little kids. And sometimes I think, what's wrong with them? But then I realize, that's going to be me, you know, 10, 15 years. And it, it just seems like that, isn't it? That life, if you really think about it, all of us, it, life seems to work in a cycle. We just follow the next person and the people in front of us. And we experience similar things as we get older. In fact, I think like oftentimes, don't you feel like life is a circle? Like your work week, you work Monday through Saturday, and then there's the weekend, and you know, then you go to church, and then tomorrow you go to work again, and it's another cycle, right? Uh, we have seasons coming. We've got Halloween again. We have Thanksgiving again, and then Christmas again, and then New Year's again. And so it's like, you know, it's like another cycle, right? We have seasons of, of victories and seasons of defeats and seasons and moments of sickness and then going back to health. And it goes over and over again and back again. And even in the church, even in the church, every Sunday, it's a routine. It seems like a cycle. As individuals, we come to church to do what we need to do. As individuals, sort of me and my God and my Bible time alongside of other individuals who are also here uh, doing their me and God Bible time, coincidentally, in the same place. And then we, after it's over, we quickly move on to our own individual lives because, after all, Sunday isn't just the Lord's day. It is also the day before Monday, before it all begins again. And so I need to cram in a few things uh, this last part of the weekend before the whole cycle begins. Everything seems cyclical. And you wonder, you know, maybe the Lion King is correct, that there is the circle of life. Right, that life is, seems to be a circle. That was a very popular uh, paradigm that pre-Christian thinkers often thought that life is simply uh, a circle, and uh, it's cyclical. Even the Earth cycles around the sun every 365 days, and we're all on it, spinning in a circle. Doesn't that what it feel like sometimes, life? And yet, at the same time. Each and every one of us, in that cycle of life, so to speak, we're all different. We're living our own lives, and our lives are each and every one of us are unique and different. We all experience different things. We, we go through different things. We, we endure different things. We all have our own sort of life stories, so to speak. The events, the things, uh, the people, the the. the the, the, you know, the experiences in life that affect us, the things that we're involved in. And, and so in this cycle of life, all of us are all different, living out our own sort of personal stories, what I want to call our own personal narratives, purposes, meaning. One of the questions that 
um, we, people used to ask in our culture is, as they realize that this is how life seems to be, are we all the same or are we all different? Are we all going through something meaningful or does it mean anything? Everyone who has a different story in their life, are we all connected or is it just everyone doing their own thing and it doesn't matter? So in 1994, if you remember the popular movie, I know I'm dating myself, the movie Pulp Fiction asked that question. You had all these different stories going on in individual lives. Each person had a different narrative. And yet towards the end, as you see the movie develop, you see that they all actually somehow connected into one story. That there is a what they call a meta-narrative, a story above all stories that seems to connect everyone. The question was so big that later in 2004, another movie called Crash was created to do the same thing, to show how there are these individual people living their own lives, somehow disconnected, but as you see and take a step back, you see that all these stories somehow are related under one story. What I want to do today is this, is this passage, and I've come to this passage very, so many times, and some of this may be, may be familiar to you, but I wanted to use this passage as a jumping point to talk about this word called narratives. Narratives, right? And then the following weeks sort of engage with some of the narratives that we experience in our life and culture, things that we think about and live by that we don't even ask or question. What is a narrative? What do I mean when I say narrative? One sociologist put it this way. A narrative is a spoken or written account of connected events. In other words, it's a story we tell to make meaning or sense of the events that we experience. And so in our culture, what we call a dominant narrative becomes dominant when a majority of a culture through repetition, tells something about a minority culture through their lens. It becomes dominant. But a narrative is simply this, that human beings, we, we just can't help do this. We, all of us, we do it. We claim to understand what we experience, what we, what we see, what we hear, and then we formulate a, 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 an explanatory sort of paradigm, a coherent story, so that we could believe this is why this happened. We do it all the time. If you work in the uh, health industry, you know this, we have what we call illness narratives, right? The way that we think about someone or the way that someone who is sick thinks about their situation. And in an illness narrative, there are three ways to think about it. For example, just to give you an example, there's a cure story. Someone is, someone is sick, and so the way they process their sickness, they ask, why am I sick? And so they say, well, this is a temporary detour in my life. The goal is to return to normal life and health, and so I need to just overcome this. And that's how they endure their situation. But others who are dealing with the same illness have a different narrative. They may call it a quest narrative. This is a point where I'm sick, but it's an opportunity to transform myself into a better person by overcoming this adversity and relearn what's most important in my life. The physical outcome of this illness doesn't matter. It's less important than the spiritual and psychological change that could happen as I endure this. That's called, that's called a, a quest narrative. Two people, same, same illness, choose to interpret with a different story. We do it all the time. And not all narratives are helpful. Some same person could be sick, and they have what we call a chaos narrative, that this situation is so bad, it's so permanent, it's only going to get worse, and there's no redeeming value. And that's how they process their story, their life. 
That's a narrative. And the thing about narratives, not only in our lives, but in the culture, in the world that we live in, it's not just something that we think we observe or experience. There's no way you can ultimately prove your narrative is correct. You might have a few statistics, but ultimately you are putting together the dots, between, the lines between the dots of what you're experiencing. And the thing about narratives is this. It doesn't just describe what you're experiencing now. It explains what you're going to experience in the future. It becomes your explanatory framework, a paradigm through which now you interpret everything else. For example, how many times have you heard this? Oh, that's, how, that's not how the world works. How many times have you said that? That's not how the world works. How do you know how the whole world works, right? That's a narrative from your experiences, from the things that you've experienced. You're saying this is what people are like. This is what people do. This is what the world is like. That's not how the world works. Or how many times have you said this? Oh, nobody does that. Nobody does that. But you don't know that nobody does that. That's an absolute terminology. You don't know every single person in their life and what they're going through. And yet you have made that conclusion. That is your narrative because of a few people or your experiences or your events. You put it together and you've made an explanation of life. But not only that, you interpret the future by everything else. I don't know if you watch Squid Game. You know. I, you know, it's like number one movie Netflix, like yada, 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 you know. Uh, I didn't think it was that good. I mean, it was good, but I don't know if it was like that good. But that's what the movie is about, right? I don't want to give away the ending, but it's really confronting a narrative. The narrative is there are people who are always selfish, and all they do is think about themselves, and that's how people are. And it isn't that narratives are, are true or false. There's always a little truth, and there's always a little false, but... In the movie, it tries to show that the people are selfish. And yet, there's a contradiction, a character that wants to prove otherwise. That's not always so, right? And so when you think about not only our personal lives, but also in the world, there are, there are what we call dominant narratives in the world. How a majority of people in society perceive and interact with one another. There are dominant stories that we're telling in the world, in our culture, which we don't even question. Our world has its own narratives. Our own culture has its own narratives. An ever-changing culture with ever-changing narratives. And so, when you come to Romans 12, I think Paul is addressing a little bit of this. Paul wants to say this, basically three things. There is an old story, or what we could call a current cultural narrative, but there's also a new story or a narrative of the Bible. And then, third point, there are important means by which God moves us from this narrative to another one. And he wants us to think and live by that one. Okay? Let's look at this really quickly. Romans chapter 12. From starting from Romans 12, if you ever read the book of Romans, it's one of the deepest and not, you know, maybe the most difficult, not so, but so theological. From 12 to the end of the chapter, it's all about do this, do this, do this, be like this. Why does he do this? Because chapters 1 through 11, he said, this is what God did, this is what God did, this is who you are, this is who you are. Now he says, now you do this, think like this, be like this, right? And so this is Romans 12. We are here in the imperatives. And just as it was read for us today, there are a couple of imperatives we're giving in verse 2. You know these verses already. Do not be conformed 
to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. What does that word conform mean? It means don't be patterned. Don't be molded. What does the world mean? It means this period in life, this age, this eon, this, we could say even this culture. Don't be patterned or molded. Don't just go along with the current culture thinking of your day. I think that's what we could say. The word conform is the same word used by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. And Peter says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So what Paul calls this world, Peter is saying, your former way of thinking. This way of thinking. Romans here, Paul says, don't be conformed. He's saying this basically. Don't be conformed to the story or the narratives of this world, this age, this thinking, the, the story, the narrative that says, hey, you need to gain as much as you can. You need to have as much as you can because life is short. Don't be conformed to that. Don't be conformed to the story and narrative that you need to keep up with the Joneses. Jones, you need to, you know, to speak and move and get into the next phase of your life from school to job to marriage to kids to retirement because that's what everyone does. And that's where everyone else is, and so should you. Don't conform, just conform to the narrative. Don't conform to the idea that you have to look pretty or prettier or thinner or stronger or better looking, otherwise you won't be popular. Don't just conform to the story out there that measures your success by how many zeros you have in your paycheck, that you'll be happy. You're only going to be happy until you make your next purchase. Don't, don't fall into that mold. We have narratives all the time. Don't conform to the story that who you are and your worth is only determined by where you work and how successful you are at your job. Don't be conformed to that story, that narrative that says your faults, your mistakes, your sins are all because of your parents' faults, your parents' mistakes and their sins or someone else's sins. And so you've got an excuse to continue to sin and not to change. Don't give in to the story out there that says nothing's going to work out for you in your future because you feel like nothing has ever worked out for you in the past. That's a narrative you're telling. Don't conform to the story that you're not lovable because you weren't loved the way you should have been and so you don't know how to love. The only thing that matters is here and now. No, the life is just whatever you think and make of it. And if you fail, it's just fate. No, that there are relatives, everything is relative, and there's no absolute except that everything is relative. No. And into this culture, into our life, the word of God, Paul says, don't be conformed. Because if the Bible is true, if God is real and Jesus is alive, and it means that the cycle of life isn't just a cycle, that there was a beginning and there will be an end and it is purposed and purposeful and meaningful. And that means that all that happens in the world, or even just in your life, is not all there is because the world isn't all there is. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, he says this, 
Remember, you were that time, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, this is what Paul says. When you're living your life, don't forget, there was a point where you didn't have God. You were alienated. There was vanity. You were hopeless. That's how you once were. But your life is different now. That, that was the old story of your life. Right? But that, that's what Peter means when he says, don't be conformed to the former ignorance of your life because that's not you anymore. You have God in your life. You know better. And so when Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, he's saying, stop telling that old narrative in your life, that old story in your life. Live out a narrative that includes him. Process your experience with him in your life. So that's the old story. Don't be conformed to it. That's the old narrative, the narrative of our culture. And then he says what? Be transformed by the renewal of our mind. There's a new story that he wants us to think about. You know, here's the thing. When we talk about cultural narratives and what people are saying outside in the world, not, it's not like, oh, all cultural narratives are false, only the biblical narrative is true. That's not what we're saying. In every narrative, there is some truth, okay? There is some truth. But the same truths are oftentimes out of context or overly used that's contrary to the story of the Bible. Um, for example, dominant narratives, we've said, inform how a majority of people in a society perceive or interact with another. Here's what I mean. We've, maybe you've experienced this. I, you know, I grew up in the South, right? And ever since the beginning, uh, in elementary school, my friends came up to me. Hey, you know Kung Fu. I mean, what racist sham <laughs> is that growing up? You, where in the world did they know? Where the little kids, second, third graders know that we know Kung Fu? What, where, where did they get that information? But I mean, when you're a little kid, you don't know any better, and so you conform to that story, and so immediately, you know, I, start, I, you know, I, I don't know Kung Fu. There are Asians who know Kung Fu. It's true. But I'm not one of them. It's false. Later on, you know, I, I, in a Christian retreat, a camp, where I was the only Asian, one guy came up to me with nunchucks. Started flipping his nunchucks in front of me and said, hey, you know anything about this? You know anything? I had no idea about nunchucks. They look like giant chopsticks to me. I, I don't really know how to do nunchucks, but, you know, that was the narrative. I'm Asian. I must know how to do nunchucks. And so, yeah, let me show you, you know, and <laughs> just swinging it around. That, that, that's, that's the narrative. It's a false narrative. We experience it all the time. You later in college, hey, let's play ping pong. I heard you're good. How do you know I'm good at ping pong? Oh, you must love K-pop, right? You must be so proud of your country. You love K-pop. You must know how to sing and dance. I can't sing or dance worth my life. These are false narratives. You're good at math. No, I was better in English. You're the model minority. No, we're not the model minority anymore. It's changing. Let me give you another perspective. How there are false narratives. Dr. Ivory Tolson, who is a professor of psychology at Howard University, he's a black professor, talks about hopeless narratives. His goal is to find better ways that educators could educate young black minds, okay? 
And this is what he says. He says, I quickly learned that many educators could not appreciate the solutions because they bought into a hopeless narrative. And their lost hope was rooted in negative statistics, bad statistics, he says. Examples of these narratives are this. Black boys are a dying breed. There are more black men in prison than college. Black children fail because single mothers raise them, and black students can't read. These are the false narratives that he's saying are false. And yet, as I begun to conduct research on these points, I found that most of these negative statistics were incorrect, poorly contextualized, or incomplete. It almost seemed like many scholars and think tanks published these stats that were attempting to sell problems rather than solutions. And this is what he says. We, black people, and our allies must demand better from the people who educate our children. But first, we must demand better from ourselves. We have to change the narrative. We have to change the narrative, end quote. What does Paul say in Romans chapter two, uh, 12, verse 2? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Tell a different story in your life. Live a different narrative because we too need to change the narrative. And the way we change that is not how just by changing circumstances in our lives or trying to redefine or remake our own life stories, but we need to find our life stories, interpret, explain our life stories within the backdrop of the greater story that's actually bigger than myself. And what is the greater story that Paul is talking about? Okay, listen carefully. Here's the narrative that Paul is saying. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern the will of God. That's the story. What do you mean? What, what's the will of God? It doesn't mean his personal will for you. It's not talking about what shirt you should wear, who you should marry, where you should work. God never told us to be consumed with trying to decode and solve his sovereign will in our lives. It's hidden. We can't always know it. And it's not that God doesn't care about the details or what happens at work or who you marry or what college you go to, but we have to beware of losing him in the midst of all these details. We often miss the forest for the trees. You can miss the big story in the midst of the little stories of your life. So what is the big story here that Paul is talking about? What is the revealed will of God for my life that Paul is talking about? The bigger story that I need to conform to, and that is simply this. God's story goes like this. He created. We fell. And there's sin. There's redemption. That Jesus Christ came to this life, paid the price on the cross, died for sin. And there's consummation. He's going to make it all good one day. The creation, the fall, redemption in Christ, and consummation. The good will of God is to bring to fruition everything that he began from the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's his will. When Paul says, be transformed by changing the way you think, changing your narrative, what he's practically saying is this. God wants us to live and act and speak and think as if that story is really true. There's a creator 
People have fell. There's real sin. But there's real redemption in Jesus Christ. And there's the promise of goodness, complete and perfect. To conform to that story means to live and to act and speak and think as if that narrative is really true for us. And it's not just some fairy tale. To find your life in that narrative. And many of us who go to church, we, we know the story of the gospel, right? We know the story of God, but oftentimes it's not the explanatory framework or the functional paradigm by which we interpret everything around us. We say we believe in God, but we function from a different narrative. See, here's the Bible story, but then here's my life and my story, and there's no connection. And if you're really clever, you can take the Bible and make your world a little more satisfying, and you just add God to your life, and maybe things will be a little bit better. You could use God right now to make your story a little bit nicer. But here's what it happens when you conform to his story and you start thinking through this paradigm, God intrudes into your life, into our story. He doesn't just add a little chapter or a little plot twist to make the tale that we're spinning a little more interesting. No, when God comes into our life and our lives and our stories, he commandeers it. He takes it into a whole different direction. And he says, I want you to think this way. Be transformed by the way you see everything. Because only then, until you find your life story within the greater story of God's story, only then will you be able to break out of your myopic, short-sighted lifestyle. Only then will you begin to be less anxious about temporary things and more concerned about eternal things. Because here's the thing. God doesn't want to be a part of your life. He's not interested in being a part of your life. He's not a part of your story. He's not your slice of the pie graph on your life where you've got your friends, your family, your school, your work, and then there's God in church and religion just for good measure. He's saying, you're a character in my story. I'm not a character in yours. I'm not just here to make your promotion come true. I'm not there in your life to make things happier for you right now. Get you a few extra bucks, maybe a better lifestyle, get married one day, have children one day, get accepted into your school. Your life, those are all important, but your life is not ultimately about what you do or what you want to do. It's about what God has already done and is continuing to do. And so when Paul says you need to change the narrative, he's telling us we're to be a part of his story. We're to be a part of what he's doing. And unless we get there, we will never escape this vain feeling, this hopeless feeling that life is just a cycle. How do we do that? Well, we renew our minds. What does that mean? Speak, think, act as if the biblical story is true. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So you hear the narrative. You know what? Everything's meaningless. There's no point to anything. No. God created. He's got a purpose. You know what? I learned one thing in life. People suck. right? People just stink. They're all selfish. Everyone's just for themselves. True, because they're sinners. We fall. But unredeemable? 
unredeemable? The cross, where is that in your life? Redemption. So there's grace and mercy and patience and forgiveness, not anger and frustration and judgment. Oh, people don't change. People are never going to change. Okay, there takes a long time to get changed. There's some truth to that. But really, the, the gospel, Jesus Christ, the cross, the fall, Jesus comes in, changed, dies for sins. He says, so that you are a new creation. Does that mean anything in your narrative? There's only pain and suffering. And then we all die. And it's only getting worse. Consummation, resurrection, eternal life. It's not the end, ultimately better. Maybe there's hope now. We think this way, and it makes a difference. And one of the practical ways that God helps us do this, guess what? In our passage today, this whole context he says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's the thing. You've got to understand the context of this passage. He's not talking to individuals. He's talking to a group of people, right? Brothers, sisters, right? He's talking to the church. Secondly, he's talking also about our worship, our spiritual worship, all right? Corporate worship, all right? So he's talking to a group of people in the context, I think, of some kind of worship. And then in verse 3, you look at verse 4, 4 and 5, uh, chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, if you keep reading, it says, we're one body, we've got many members, but we all don't have the same function. And so the context where he tells people to, to not be conformed to this way of thinking but be changed is in the context of a body that is worshiping. It's not just individual, but it's corporate worship. And it's in this context that we are told not to conform to the world. Here's what I think he means. One of the ways, not the only ways, but one of the primary ways of helping us not being just conformed, but transformed, not telling the old story of our life, but the new story of God's work, is the direct activity of our worship. That when we come together to worship, we are reminded of our guilt. We are pronounced his grace. We are consecrated, consummated with his preaching. We are fed at his table with the Lord's Supper. He then commissions us with the benediction to go and take the world. He takes us out of the world. Sunday, he takes us out of our individualized stories. Then he puts us all together in the backdrop of the greatest story ever told, the story of redemption. All of you have different stories, but we're all here together at the same time listening to me. And as we worship together as one body, here Jesus meets with us and brings us together a foretaste of that perfect goodwill that we will be with him together as one. He longs for us to be in his presence. That's his goal. Not just later, but here and now. And even more than that, even more than what we long to see him, he longs for us in worship. So let me ask you a question. Are you checking your time? Are you always wishing, are you wishing that this will hurry up and end so that you could go back to your life and tell your own narrative, tell your story, live by the current trends, because you know what? Here's the thing. Your life is not your own. It's not yours. 
You were bought at a price. You are owned by the precious blood of a redeemer. That's the story. Your time is God's, and God can say any time, time is up. Your life is vapor. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. tomorrow. And it reminds us that even though life can feel like a circle, it isn't. There was a beginning. There will be an end, whether in your life or the life to come. And as we worship him, along the way, he removes us from that story, the old story, the old narratives, and he places us in another. So may we be transformed. May you change the way you process the narrative of your lives, even in the unhelpful narratives of this world, by the renewal of your thinking and your heart with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.